Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, have you ever heard of a woman named Rosalind Franklin? Probably not, but you can draw a line from today's COVID vaccines all the way back to her in the 1950s. She conducted some serious research into the makeup of RNA molecules. Rosalind also did some groundbreaking research into the structure of DNA molecules. And without her, Jim Watson and Francis Crick may not have discovered how DNA was constructed. They would go on to win the Nobel Prize in 1962, but was Rosalind ever given the credit she deserved? No. What about Grace Hopper? Does that ring any bells? Back in the 1940s, Lieutenant Grace Hopper invented some computer programming techniques used by the Army during World War II. This was the basis of COBOL, the computer language still used by business, finance, and administrative software today. Okay, it doesn't, doesn't help. Uh, okay, let's try Susan Kerr. You know, well, she's the one who came up with the trash can icon and the command key on Mac computers. She was integral to making the Mac operating system as user-friendly as possible. Okay, here, here's a name I, I think you'll know. Hedy Lamarr, famous actress from old Hollywood in the 1930s and 40s and the one-time date of Howard Hughes, right? But she also worked with a guy named George M. Thiel to come up with a radio frequency hopping technology that made today's Wi-Fi, cellular phones, Bluetooth, and GPS communication possible. In fact, some people call Hedy Lamarr the mother of Wi-Fi. But does she get appropriate credit for that? No. Those are just a few of the unsung heroines of technology. They changed the world. And there were so many more in other fields, too. Back in the late 1800s, Nellie Bly became the first investigative female journalist. Effa Manley was the first woman to own a sports team. That was back in the 1930s. Beulah Henry was nicknamed Lady Edison because she was such a prolific inventor. And while we all know about Joan of Arc, what about Matilda of Tuscany? Yeah, she had a 40-year military career and successfully led troops against the Holy Roman Emperor again and again and again almost a thousand years ago. Unsung heroines from history. There are similar stories from the world of music. Women who change things so much, but have given so little credit. Let's see if we can't do a little bit to fix that. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and welcome to Driven by Her, a special new podcast series from the Ongoing History of New Music, presented by our friends at Porsche Canada. Porsche was founded on the pursuit of a dream, much like the careers of some of the women who will be featured as part of these podcasts. These are trailblazers, hit makers, dynamic, driven women who would not take no for an answer. And they changed the face of music in the process. And on this episode, you're going to hear about more than a dozen women who should be better known because of their contributions to music, but for whatever reason, are not. We'll start in the 1920s with a woman who had a good career with four dozen blues recordings made in the 20s and 30s. Trixie Smith was also an actor and vaudeville performer. In September 1922, she made a record with a band called the Jazz Masters, and this record was called My Man Rocks Me with One Steady Roll. And as far as anyone can tell, this song, which is about sex in case you missed the memo, is the first example of the use of rocking and rolling to be used in a secular song. 
Others would follow Trixie. And in the coming years, those words, rocking and rolling and rock and roll, appeared in other songs, almost exclusively amongst blues and R&B singers, including Billy Ward and his Dominoes, who released a song called 60 Minute Man that included the line, I rock em, I roll em all night long. Now fast forward about 30 years. Alan Freed was a disc jockey working at WINS in New York City. He'd become famous referring to himself as Moondog and King of the Moondogs. But then he was hit by a lawsuit by a blind New York street musician named, yes, you guessed it, Moondog. And in 1956, Alan Freed lost the case against Moondog and was ordered to pay the original guy $6,000. This being showbiz, Freed needed a new catchphrase. Because he'd become famous by playing R&B records by black performers for a largely white audience, he knew all the slang and all the lingo and all the songs, like 60 Minute Man by Billy Ward and his Dominoes. After a night of brainstorming with some buddies, okay, heavy drinking is probably more like it, he decided that rock and roll would be his thing, his catchphrase. And all the music he would play on his radio show would forever be referred to as rock and roll. It worked. And all the records he played on his show became referred to as rock and roll records. He even tried to copyright the term, but that didn't work. But the bottom line to all this is that we can trace this term, rock and roll, rocking and rolling, whatever you want to call it, all the way back to Trixie Smith in 1922. And for that, she deserves credit. Next up is another singer from almost 100 years ago. Ma Rainey was a blues singer who toured through the U.S. South in the 1920s and 30s. She had a big voice and also a style that sometimes involved a little moaning. And she was one of the first women to record music that she actually wrote herself. In addition to being a recording artist, she was also a band leader, a promoter, and later the owner of a music venue. She was a one-woman music industry. Plus, she was a big, black, queer woman. Her teeth were capped in gold. Her makeup was thick as contemporary goths would wear. And she was very open about how her preferences lay with women. Again, this is the 1920s. You just didn't do any of this stuff. Over the decades, Ma Rainey was reduced to a cult figure. Only people who knew the blues knew of her. Oh, and Bob Dylan, who name-checked her in his song Tombstone Blues. And it really wasn't until the movie Ma Rainey's Black Bottom in 2020, which was based on a 1982 theater production, that more people learned about her. Try this sample. This is Ma Rainey with Bow Weevil Blues. I want to bring up one more early blues singer. Memphis Minnie has been called by some as, wait for it, the original punk rocker because she sang louder and played her guitar harder than most anyone else back when she started attracting attention in the 1930s. You did not mess with Memphis Minnie. She always had her pistol and she always had her pocket knife. Try anything and she'd threaten to shoot you or cut you. And when she played, she chewed and spit tobacco. I mean... Total, total badass. Have a listen to this. Does does it sound familiar? If it keeps on raining, going to break. If it keeps on raining, going to break. Now fast forward to 1971, side two, track four of the fourth Led Zeppelin album. So 
So yeah, that Zep classic is an adaptation of the original by Memphis Minnie. She's credited as a songwriter on that recording, so her estate must have made good coin from it. Yet how many people have ever heard of Memphis Minnie? And the answer is not enough. Let's segue to a couple of singers whose voices appear on legendary recordings, but too few people know who they are. The first is Mary Clayton, a soul and gospel singer from New Orleans. On November 2nd, 1969, Mary was lying in bed at home. She really couldn't do much because she was almost five months pregnant. But just before midnight, the phone rang, and on the other end of the line was a record producer named Jack Nietzsche. A band he was working with, a big client, was doing some last-second recording at Sunset Sound in L.A., and they were struggling with a song. Some point that evening, they came up with the idea of having a female backup vocalist for this one part. Could, could Mary possibly come in? No, she said. I don't know this band, and I don't care. She slammed down the phone. Just as she was drifting back to sleep, her husband nudged her and said, uh, Honey, maybe... You know, hear me out. Maybe, maybe you should take this gig. Fine, she huffed. So, still in her pajamas and with her hair up in rollers, she got in the car and headed over to the studio, where she was greeted at the door by Keith Richards. Here are the lyrics. Here's what we're looking for. Let me get you a stool because, damn lady, you're pregnant. So, Mary went through three takes and then went home. This was the result. That has gone down in history as one of the great guest vocals on any record. And if you listen carefully, you can hear Mick Jagger give out an impressed woo when Mary's voice cracks on the word murder in that one part. Her performance makes that song, yet she was paid just a standard studio singer fee for her work. There is a dark side to this, though. The next day, Mary miscarried. She and her husband lost a little girl, and Mary thinks it might have happened because of the lateness of the hour and the strain she put on her body with that performance, and she wasn't able to listen to Gimme Shelter for years. Mary has also appeared on plenty of other legendary recordings, Sweet Home Alabama by Leonard Skinner, Feeling All Right by Joe Cocker, Tori Amos, Coldplay, Ringo Starr. She's also recorded albums of her own and appeared on the London stage in the role of the Acid Queen in a production of The Who's Tommy. Oh, and one more thing. On August 16, 2014, Mary was involved in a serious car crash in L.A., her injuries were so bad that she lost both her legs. They were amputated below the knees. But she continues to record, both as a solo artist and as a backup singer. The story of Claire Torrey is somewhat similar. In 1973, Pink Floyd was working on their eighth studio album at Abbey Road Studios in London. Keyboardist Richard Wright had come up with a chord progression that he provisionally called the Religion Song, or the Religious Section, or the Mortality Sequence and this formed the basis of a song that would end side one. When you listen to it, it's supposed to represent a person who is dying. The first half of the song is denial and rage, but then it transforms into acceptance and peace as the person fades away. It was originally played on an organ, but by September 1973, the arrangement had moved from organ to piano. It was nice, but it needed something. Some sound effects, maybe? Some recordings of NASA astronauts communicating with ground control were tried, but uh, that didn't work. 
The engineer for these sessions was Alan Parsons, and he had an idea of having a woman singer come in and wail over these sequences in ways that would express denial, rage, and acceptance. He called up Claire, whom he knew as a backup singer. When she arrived on a Sunday afternoon, she was told that there were no words. She was just to listen to the music, to feel it, and then just let her rip. Improvise. Don't hold back. Make it up. Long notes. Pretend you're a musical instrument. And that was the sum total of the direction she was given. And what came out was extraordinary. For that performance, which, by the way, is a compilation of maybe half a dozen takes, Claire was paid a standard flat fee of 30 pounds with no royalties. That's about the equivalent of $400 today. That doesn't seem right, does it? In 2004, Claire sued Pink Floyd on the basis that her performance, something that she created, was such an integral part of the song that she was due some cash. In fact, she demanded a songwriting credit. The case was settled out of court for an undisclosed sum, and if you look at all editions of Dark Side of the Moon issued after 2005, you'll find the credit Vocal Composition by Claire Torrey in the liner notes. If you're into electronic music and EDM, you should know that these next two women are essential to what you listen to. We'll start with Daphne Oram. In 1942, she became a junior studio engineer at the BBC. Her first job was to make sure that music broadcasts continued should things be interrupted by Nazi bombing runs. If that happened, she was supposed to seamlessly switch over to recorded music. This led her to experimenting with audio recording gear. After the war, she got deep into the idea of composing with synthetic sounds and then esoteric audio equipment. Not synthesizers, mind you. They hadn't been invented yet. So she used things like sine wave oscillators combined with magnetic tape machines. Her studio must have looked like something out of a science fiction movie. In 1957, she created the soundtrack for a play entitled Ampatrion 38, which was the first ever all-electronic score for anything. Have a listen. Once she convinced the BBC to establish an electronic workshop, they call it the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, more experimentation followed. When she left the Beeb in 1959, she founded her own studio devoted to creating new sounds. For example, all the electronic sounds heard in the first three James Bond movies, Dr. No from Russia with Love and Goldfinger, were all created by Daphne Oram. Pretty cool, right? Now, any discussion of her work inevitably leads to Delia Derbyshire. Once Daphne got the BBC Radiophonic Workshop up and running, a succession of people went through the place, including Delia, who got a job there in 1962. She stayed there for 11 years, working on electronic music for close to 200 radio and TV programs, using tape machines and oscillators and sine wave generators, whatever she could get her hands on. Very important stuff going on here in the history of electronic music, and she continued her experimental compositions until 1975. Her most famous work involved taking the theme from the BBC show Doctor Who and turning it into something entirely electronic. Now, she didn't write it. That was done by composer Rob Grainer. But she is the one who gave it that familiar electronic arrangement. And this is what viewers heard from 1963 to 1980 at the start of every episode of Doctor Who. 
One of the most famous TV theme songs ever, courtesy Delia Derbyshire and the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. The next woman's story is beyond extraordinary. Wendy Carlos, originally known as Walter, was a physics and music major at Brown University and later at Columbia University in New York, where she got a master's degree in music composition. This led to a stint with the Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Center, where engineers were working on a new thing called a synthesizer. She worked carefully with Bob Moog, offering a musician's perspective on how his new electronic instruments should look and feel. A keyboard, for example, before Wendy came along, that wasn't part of the plan. The feel of the individual keys when pressed, that kind of thing was also important. By 1966, she was using an early Moog synth to create sound effects and jingles for radio and TV. In 1967, she was given the opportunity to record some classical music as a way of demonstrating this new technology. The goal was to show that synths could be used for more than just bleeps and boops and sound effects. The result was an album entitled Switched On Bach, 10 pieces by Johann Sebastian Bach, and everything was played on a giant modular synthesizer unit supplied by Bob Moog. It took forever to record back then because the synth was only capable of playing one note at a time. And programming each sound was a lengthy process of using switches and knobs and dozens of patch chords. Here's Wendy demonstrating the Moog for the BBC. Let me try and show you how we get some of these sounds. First of all, none of them exist as a particular sound as they would on an electronic organ. There's no magic button marked trumpet or violin or drums. You have to build every sound. And to start to build these sounds, you have to start with something pretty simple. And here are the simple things we start with. There are five of them. The simplest one of all is something that any lab technician must have seen at one time or another. It's called a sine wave. It's very smooth, very flute-like. A little bit more complicated wave is called sawtooth. And it's called sawtooth because on an oscilloscope screen, it looks just like a sawtooth. And uh, this one is a little richer, a little reedier, and it resembles a lot of sounds found on home electronic organs. Something in between those last two, and a very useful sound indeed, is something called triangular, and it's kind of a pointed sine wave. So you can see it's a little brighter than a sine wave. Um, this one's called pulse wave, and I'm just going to show you how it swings into a thing called square wave. It's uh, up, down, up, down, just like a switch. If you flip a switch, you're making a pulse wave. If it's an even off, on, off, on, then it looks, on an oscilloscope, very symmetrical, and it's called a square wave. And if I take the time that it's on and make it different from the time that it's off, it changes quality. Listen to it. I can't imagine how many overdubs were required to make something like this, especially considering that it was recorded on an 8-track recorder that had to be custom-built. I've heard that it took five months and over a thousand hours in the studio. Switched On Bach was a massive hit. Not only was it commercially successful, but it drew attention to the capabilities of the synthesizer and the possibilities for electronic music. And when Stanley Kubrick was looking for a futuristic score for his 1971 movie, A Clockwork Orange, he hired Wendy.
Let's now turn our attention to women who work in recording studios. The percentage of women who work as producers and engineers is, and there's no way around it, dismal. Way less than 10% of all possessions. I've heard the number 2% quoted. So that makes the accomplishments of these next two women all that much more remarkable. The first is Ethel Gabriel. She was a Grammy-winning record producer. Starting in the late 1950s, she was one of the very, very first, if not the first, female producers. And for nearly four decades, she was the only woman producer at RCA Records. In her career, she produced over 2,500 albums and earned at least 15 gold records. And this included working on hits by people like Elvis Presley and Perry Como. She also worked on a long-running project called Living Strings, choosing the music, hiring the arrangers and musicians, and then supervising the recording sessions. She also worked in A&R. She was a talent scout. Ethel worked with RCA to establish their famous studios in Nashville. She got very technical, too, working on the first stereophonic recordings. She even supervised the first-ever stereo recording session for Bing Crosby, and she was involved with RCA's first-ever disco releases. Ethel retired from RCA in 1984 after 44 years, but continued with various projects for the next 20 years. She died in 2021 at the age of 99. You can draw a straight line from Ethel to Sylvia Massey, who began by recording punk bands on the cheap. By the end of the 1980s, she was living in Los Angeles and managed to get a job as a staff engineer at a studio in West Hollywood. That led to more engineering and production jobs, leading up to producing two tool projects, Opiates and Undertow. Since then, she's worked behind the board for Aerosmith, Prince, Bobby Brown, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Slayer, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Cage the Elephant, Johnny Cash, a Taylor Hawkins solo project, System of a Down, the Smashing Pumpkins, the Black Crows, and the Beastie Boys. Sylvia owned her own studio for years, a place booked by Sublime, Econoline Crush, and dozens of others. Sylvia has served as visiting professor at the Berklee College of Music and has conducted workshops for the Abbey Road Institute. And last I heard, she was working out of her studio in Ashland, Oregon. All right, what about female record executives? There are more of them these days, but still not enough. Among the very first was Sadie Dupuis. Her real name was Johnny Mae Matthews. In 1958, she borrowed $85 to form a label called Northern Recording Company. And as far as I can tell, that made her the first woman to ever own her own record label. The company was based out of Detroit. And it was she who taught Barry Gordy about how to make distribution deals for artists on his own Motown records. Margot Nets got into the business as an executive in 1970. She later ran Atco Records for most of the 80s. She worked on campaigns for everyone from Stevie Nicks to Pete Townsend to ABBA to Hall & Oates. She died in 2022 at the age of 84. We've also seen Marsha Zazula. She launched a metal label called Megaforce Records with her husband John back in 1982, and that label released the first records by bands like Metallica and Anthrax. She also ran Crazed Management, which included clients like Ace Freely of Kiss, Ministry, Testament, and King's X. When she died of cancer in 2021 at the age of 68, the entire metal community mourned. Diana Meltzer remains one of the most interesting record people I've ever met. Together with her late husband, Alan, she founded Wind Up Records. She started as a fashion model and then moved into running a record store in Connecticut. When she met Alan, she got into A&R, looking for hot new talent. And because she was so good at picking hit acts, she became known as the woman with the golden ears. It was she who signed Creed, Evanescence, Alter Bridge, Finger Eleven, Drowning Pool, Bright Eyes, and many others. 
I was once invited to her Park Avenue apartment after a showcase in New York, and the place was filled with pictures of celebrities and original artwork from everyone from John Lennon to Andy Warhol. And finally, I need to mention Carol Kay. You may not know her name, but there is no way that you have not heard her play. She is one of the most heard bass players in the history of humanity. A modest guess is that she appears on 10,000 different recordings. Yeah, 10,000. Carol was an in-demand session player. She started working in studios in 1957, switching from guitar to bass in 1963. And listen, no women played bass in 63. It was just not a lady's instrument. But she didn't care. If there were gigs to be had as a session bass player, fine. Within a few years, she was part of a group of studio musicians known as The Wrecking Crew, some of the highest and most top-notch players who were called in only when the best would do. They could play in any style at any time of the day or night. That's Carol we hear on La Bamba by Richie Valens. Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys? That's Carol. The original Batman theme? Carol. The Righteous Brothers and You've Lost That Love and Feeling? Carol. Joe Cocker and With a Little Help from My Friends? That's Carol. Nancy Sinatra, The Monkees, Ray Charles, Sonny and Cher, Glenn Campbell, Neil Young, Frank Zappa, Tina Turner. The list is nearly endless. She even played with Frank Black of the Pixies on a 2006 record called Fast Man Raider. And I haven't mentioned all the movie soundtracks. The Thomas Crown Affair, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, at least one Planet of the Apes movie, Dirty Harry, Wonder Woman, the theme from MASH and Mission Impossible and the Brady Bunch. And that's Carol playing bass on this TV theme song. The Adams Family theme with bass parts from Carol Kay, possibly the most heard bass player in the history of recorded music. All the women mentioned in this program deserve more attention for their contributions. And there were many, many others that did not make this list. Bottom line is that too many women have been historically marginalized and their contributions either played down, ignored, or claimed by other people. But one thing is clear. They were all driven to do what they needed to do, no matter what was in their way. I hope you enjoyed episode three of Driven by Her, a special new podcast series from the ongoing history of new music presented by our friends at Porsche Canada. Join me next time for a look at more trailblazers and hitmakers, these dynamic women who live by their own rules and change the face of modern music around the world along the way. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. Talk soon. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 